this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. We are continuing today in uh, walking through the book of Ephesians. We're talking about building up the body of Christ. And in these opening verses of Ephesians, it's talking about the blessings that we have been given in Christ. Blessings that should really fill our hearts with wonder. And so today, we're talking about the wonder of life in Christ. And to see that, we're going to look at verses 7 through 14 of the first chapter of Ephesians. So follow along with me as I read from God's Word. Paul is talking about all that we have in Him, in Christ. And he says, beginning in verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, it is mind-boggling the blessings that we have been given by You in Christ. Father, we thank You for the gospel that has come to us and the purpose and the plan that You have to use us in spreading that message. And part of that is being captured ourselves with a contagious sense of wonder at what you've given to us. Father, help us to see that today, maybe clearer than we've ever seen it before. And so we pray now that you would give us the ability to focus on you in these vital moments together. We desire to hear from you, the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's my great joy to be the father of three. And imagine my kids a few years ago. Imagine Caleb as an eight-year-old, Courtney as a four-year-old, and Cassidy as a two-year-old. And imagine that I get them, each of them to myself, one-on-one, And I tell all three of them the same story. And so I get eight-year-old Caleb, just me and him, and I say to Caleb, I say, the boy 
walked up to the door, opened the door, and a lion jumped out. When I say a lion jumped out, his eyes are wide open, his, his mouth's open. He's, a, a lion jumped out? Now imagine that I get four-year-old Courtney to myself. And I say, honey, the boy walked up to the door and opened the door. Courtney doesn't have to hear anything about a lion for her eyes to be absolutely white. He opened the door? What, was the, what, what happened then? Well, then I get little two-year-old Cassidy, whose entire worldview at that point could have been summed up in one word. Cookie. And I say to little Cassidy, I say, the boy walked up to the door. That's all she needs to hear for her eyes to be absolutely wide with wonder. What's going to happen then? See, the older that we get, the more that it takes to fill our hearts with wonder. This text is about the wonder of what we have been given in Christ. Jesus said that unless you change and become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what he meant by that is that to be saved, we have to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves and depend completely on the work of Jesus to save us. But even as we grow in Christ, the more mature that we get in Christ, the more of that sense of childlike dependence upon God that we'll have. The most mature Christians that I know are the ones that have just a childlike faith in God. They have a sense of wonder at what Jesus has done for them. This text should fill our hearts with that kind of wonder. What have we been given in Christ that should fill our hearts with wonder? The first thing is propitiation. Oh, that's a theological word. What's it all about? Well, propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. A sacrifice that turns away wrath. Now, who's our propitiation? It's Jesus. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God became a human being and, and took, allowed His own righteous wrath against sin to fall on Him so that that wrath could be turned away from us. And we could be redeemed. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verses 7 and 8. He says, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of all our trespasses. Now, the word redemption means to deliver by payment of a price. It means to liberate from bondage or captivity now, as a Jew, when Paul 
thought, thought about redemption, he could not separate that from the story of the Exodus. When the Jewish people were released from captivity, from slavery in Egypt. How? By means of blood. God told them to smear the blood of Passover lambs on the doorposts of their houses and that the death angel would pass over them. And that very night, they were delivered from, from slavery. And of course, the blood of those Passover lambs that night really was meant to point to the ultimate Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who redeems us from captivity, from slavery to sin. How does He do it? By means of His blood. We have redemption through His blood. The curse that was due to us because of our own rebellion against God and our our turning away from the law of God, that wrath that was due to us fell on Jesus in our place. So Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller talks about the fact that really all true love involves substitution. It, it involves sacrifice. If you're going to love anybody in, in serious need, if you're going to really love them, you, you have to enter into their need. If you were to walk in one day, uh, husbands, if you were to walk in one day and your wife was being attacked by an intruder in love, you would immediately go, go, you would go intervene. You would put yourself in harm's way to try to secure your wife's safety. Her, her safety is going to be increased to the degree that you're willing to put yourself in harm's way, to put yourself at risk. A, a lifeguard puts himself or herself at risk every time when they, drive, they, they dive in to save a drowning person because that person could pull them under or the rip current that's taking them out could take them out. They, they, they leave their own security and dive in and put themselves at, at risk to save another. You know, parenting. We think about a day like today, we're thinking about parenting, but parenting involves this kind of sacrifice as well. When our children are born, they're completely dependent. And as they grow, they're only going to become independent to the degree that we're willing as parents to give up our own independence. If we're not willing as parents to inconvenience ourselves, to give up some of our our own freedom and our own independence, what usually happens is that those kids grow up to be very dependent adults who are very bound up emotionally. It's, It's your freedom or theirs. All true love really involves entering into somebody else's need. 
But of course, all of that is ultimately displayed by God. Keller says this, All life-changing love toward people with serious needs is a substitutional sacrifice. How can God be a God of love if He does not become personally involved in suffering the same violence, oppression, grief, weakness, and pain that we experience? The answer is twofold. First, God can't. He can't love us that way unless He enters into our need. And second, the only major religion that even uh, only one major religion even claims that God does. That's Christianity. Only Christianity has a God who becomes a human being, uh, leaves His own glory, and, 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 and comes to rescue His creation. Enters into our need, enters into our suffering, takes our need, takes our suffering upon Himself so that we can be free. And so in Christ we have propitiation. Second, in Christ we have purpose. Verses 9 and 10 says that God was making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, God here lets us in on a mystery. A mystery is something that was previously undisclosed but has now been revealed. Well, what was it? What was God now revealing to His people? It was God's plan. That God has a plan and a purpose for His creation. You see, when sin entered the creation, God's good creation, what happened? It was torn apart. We're torn apart. Each one of us. We're born with a sin nature. There's, there's a torn apartness within every single one of us, every human being. And relationships are torn apart because of sin. Even creation itself, even nature itself is not what God originally created it to be. I mean, we have all kinds of disorders, hurricanes and earthquakes and on and on within creation. These were not a part of God's original creation. There's a torn apartness in creation now because of sin. Paul says in Romans 8 that, that even creation itself is groaning in pain because of the effects of sin. But listen, it will not always be so. God has a plan. His, his plan is to unite all things. All things, once again, are going to be made right. Because of the work of Christ and dying for sinners and conquering death and rising, and rising from the dead, God has begun this process. Now, it's going to be complete when Jesus comes again. But it's already begun. It's begun as God takes broken people and makes us right. He makes us new creations. And then what God does is He takes us as new creations and we join with Him in helping other people be reconciled and put back together in a relationship with God. Now Paul talks about all of this in 2 Corinthians 5. 
says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you're in Christ, you have, life has begun anew. Old things are passed away. Behold, the new has come. Yes. But does God do that in our lives just so we can just sit there and say that we're new creations? No. Once God makes us a new creation, He calls us to join with Him in helping other people to be reconciled to God, which is exactly what He says next. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Listen to me. Whatever your vocation, whatever your job is, You are an ambassador for Christ. That's your ultimate purpose in life. God has, you're saved to serve. God has, has saved you. He's made you a new creation so that you can join with Him in helping other people be new creations, helping other people be reconciled to God as He's, he's uniting all things through Christ. And we have this incredible purpose. You know, I hear about people say, well, I'm going to make God a part of my life. You know, as if it's their play and they're going to give God a role in their play. How generous of us to give God a role in our play. God says, no, actually, no. <laughs> it's, uh, it's God's play. It's God's story. And he, he graciously saves us and gives us a role to play in that. It's, it's about Him. As Rick Warren says in the first line of the purpose-driven life. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about His purpose and His plan for the world. And the amazing thing is that He allows us to be a part of that. A part of that, of all things coming together and being summed up in Christ as we go forth as His ambassadors with the gospel and help men and women and boys and girls be reconciled to God. That is our grand purpose in life. You know, Mark Twain once said, most men die at 27. We just bury them at 72. And what he meant by that was that most guys along the way lose a sense of purpose. And life just becomes a rut. A rut. T.S. Eliot captured this in his classic poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, when he, he said, Morning, evening, afternoon, I've measured out my life with coffee spoons. Just a, a day after day, just a, a rut, a, a life without purpose. Listen. Life becomes drudgery without a purpose higher than you. You were made for more than mirrors. You were made for the praise of His glory. 
as you live your life with a driving sense of purpose of being an ambassador for Christ. And so we've been given propitiation. We've been given purpose. Third, we've been given power. Verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, God doesn't save us and then just say, okay, do the best you can. No, God empowers us. When he saves us, he empowers us with the Holy Spirit. And Paul uses three words here to describe the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit is a promise, a seal, and a guarantee. First of all, He is the promised Spirit. In the Old Testament, God gave prophets who promised that the Spirit was one day going to be poured out. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus says, it's when, I, when I go away, when I am ascended, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He is going to be my personal presence and power with you. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. So that now every believer is empowered with the Spirit of, of God. He is the promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise. And then Paul says that, that when we believed in the gospel, in Christ, we were sealed by the Spirit. Now what's he talking about? In, in the ancient world in which this was written, a very important document, or really any, any important thing that was inside of a container, it would be stamped with a wax seal. And on that seal would be the emblem of the owner. And so that seal told who owned the contents of whatever was in that letter, whatever was in that container. Dr. Craig, Blunt, uh, Craig uh, Keener, in his New Testament backgrounds, says a wax seal would have a mark of ownership stamped on it, identifying who was attesting what was inside the container that had been sealed. Now, the seal for us is in our hearts. Those wax seals were on, ex, they were external. God's seal in our lives is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In his 2010 memoir, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair talks about an American friend of his whose parents came to America as very poor Jewish immigrants. They lived in New York City and, 
and just as a poor immigrant family, the father, the immigrant father, died when the son was very young. Um, but the son of these immigrant parents uh, grew to become v- very wealthy, and he'd travel the world, and, and often when he would go, go overseas on a business trip, he'd ask his mom to go with him, and she would never do it. She didn't want to, she didn't want, she said, no, I'll, I'll just, I'll just stay right here. When she died, and they were going through her belongings, they found her box of jewelry, but then right beside that, they found another box. It had no key. They had to drill through to get to what was in there. They lifted the lid and there was just layers of wrapping, one layer after another, and they thought, what precious treasure must, must this be that we're going to discover? And they get through all the layers of wrapping, and then they, they get to an envelope. And they open up the envelope, and it was her, the papers, that identified her as an American citizen. That was, that was a precious treasure to her. Paul says it's the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit that identifies us as children of God. The Spirit identifies us as those who truly belong to Christ. It, 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 it attests who we belong to. And now, at the end of verse 22, he uses another word for the Spirit, doesn't he? He says the Spirit is like a guarantee. And that's the same word that he uses in Ephesians 1.14. He says that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What's he mean by that? Well, the word guarantee here can be translated also as a deposit or a down payment. That's the way that it was used in ancient times. It signified a, a down payment, which is like the first installment of what is to come. Right? When a, a down payment on a house is like the first installment of, of what is to, to come in the future, what's to be completed. And what he's saying here is that those of us who have tasted of the Holy Spirit, we've just gotten a foretaste of the glorious inheritance that is going to come to us in Christ when we take possession of it. We're already heirs. One day we're going to take possession of it. Now, think about what this must have meant to these people in Ephesus who are suffering all kinds of trials because of their faith in Christ. What must this have meant to them to know that their trials were not going to last? What they were going through, the trials and tribulations of this earth, are not going to last. They are temporary And we've got a forever glorious inheritance 
that is awaiting us. On September 2nd, 1945, the final documents of surrender that brought an end to the Second World War were signed on the deck of the battleship Missouri. And the last person to sign the documents of the Japanese surrender was General Douglas MacArthur. And on that day, MacArthur took his Parker fountain pen and he signed his first name, Douglas. And then he handed the pen to General Wainwright, who signed Mac. And then he handed the pen to General Percival, who signed Arthur. This was MacArthur's way of honoring General Wainwright and General Percival, who had suffered as POWs. They had suffered and persevered in that suffering, and he wanted them to be a part of the glory. Now Paul says in Romans 8, in verses 16 and 17, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The Bible teaches that if we truly belong to Christ, that we will persevere in our faith. And that one day we will we will share in the glory of Christ. And listen, in the very next verse, in verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. I mean, no matter what we go through in this life, I mean, if you were to take all of that, all the pain and suffering of this life, and you were to put it in one pile, the weight of that would just be totally overwhelmed by the weight of the glory that is coming to us who belong to, to Christ. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We have an inheritance, a glorious inheritance to look forward to, that we're going to acquire possession of. And the Spirit bears witness that we are heirs that are coming into that inheritance. See, the promise is not for everybody. The promise is for the heirs. It's the heirs that are going to take possession of the inheritance one day. So the question is, how do I become an heir? 
We become an heir. You become an heir by becoming a child of the Father. And how do you become a child of the Father? John 1.12 says, As many as received Christ, as many as believed in His name, to them He gave the right to become children of God. You're not born as a child of God. You become a child of God through faith in Christ. You become a child of the Father. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has never received Christ, placed their trust in what Christ has done and been adopted by you as your own child. Father, I pray that, that today you would open the eyes of their hearts to see Jesus, to turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith and become your child, an heir with a glorious inheritance. Right now, as we continue to pray, is that the prayer of your heart? To be a child of God. Turn to Him right now in prayer. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon Him right now. Say, Lord, I believe. I believe that you died for my sins. I know I can't save myself. I humble myself. I acknowledge my sins. And I depend completely on Jesus and what He has done to save me. And I turn from living life in my own way and I turn to You in repentance and in faith. The Bible tells us that when we make that most important decision in life, that it's not to remain a secret. That if it's real, we'll acknowledge Christ openly, publicly. In just a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation. We're going to give you the opportunity to do that. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're coming to Him, in just a moment as we stand, I want to invite you to come. I'm going to be here at the front. Just share with me what God has done in your life. Or maybe you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of our church family. As soon as others stand, we want to invite you to slip out and to come. And we want to welcome you. And so, Father, we give you now this time of decision. Lord, make this a defining moment in lives today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. 
but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.